Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with two other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The aspen tree uh, captures our imaginations uh, unlike uh, just about any other tree. Uh, This has to do with the way they reproduce. Uh, We have Pando, of course, in uh, central Utah, which uh, could be one of the oldest living organisms on Earth. Um, And uh, for those reasons and several others, uh, school children, fourth graders, I believe, from Monroe uh, have proposed to uh, to the legislature that we change the state tree to uh, to be Aspen away from the Colorado blue spruce. Uh, The governor, Governor Herbert, says he thinks this might well pass. Uh, We have a couple of takes on Aspen's today. Or Aspen. Paul Rogers was telling me before the uh, program that Aspen is the plural. That's correct. Unless you're talking about multiple species around the world, there are five species of Aspen's. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I should say Aspen. Uh, So we're going to get sort of an allegorical take on this with Paul Sullivan, who has written a uh, children's book. Uh, It's called Aspen's Roots. We'll learn about this as we go along. And Paul Sullivan joins us from uh, Hong Kong, I believe. Paul Sullivan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you, Tom. And Paul Rogers is director of the Western Aspen Institute based at Utah State University. Also, I think, adjunct uh, faculty member with... The Wildland Resource Department. Wildland Resource Department. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. By the way, that's the Western Aspen Alliance. Western Aspen Alliance. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, correction. Uh, So, as I mentioned, uh, Paul Rogers, uh, Aspens, I think, capture the imagination. Part of that is the way they reproduce, and it's it's from cloning. This is why Pando is maybe one of the oldest living organizations. oldest and largest living organism in the world. Tell us how aspens reproduce generally. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about Pando. Well, uh, Pando is uh, is thought to be one of the largest living organisms on Earth. Of course, we haven't looked at every clone that there is in the world. And there's some competitors, a large mushroom in Oregon, for example. But it is thought to be one of the largest living organisms on Earth. As far as oldest, uh, there's just really no way for us to tell that at this point. Although that sounds like a nice lead-in. Um, um, it's a little difficult to, to age the uh, clone. We can age individual trees or stems uh, that arise from a large root system like Pando, but it's difficult to age a, a, a large clone uh, such as that. So uh, this this clone on the Fish Lake National Forest, immediately adjacent to Fish Lake itself, is about 106 acres in size and about 43,000 stems. Uh, and so it's a very large uh, aspen clone, and clones range in size from one stem to, as far as we know, 43,000. So there's a whole variety of, uh, of uh, sizes of aspen clones going on out there. Uh, but what we mean by a clone is essentially a, a, at some point in time a single seed germinated and started an aspen uh, tree. Uh, that tree grew, and then subsequent generations uh, uh, arose from root suckers, that they call them, smaller trees that come up from the roots, as opposed to another seed. So over time, some of those can get quite large, as, as we've seen with the Pando clone. So uh, generally, at least in the West, if I see a, a grove of aspen, however large, their, their root systems are interconnected. It's essentially one organism? Well, yeah, and a good way sort of for the layperson to tell, uh, to get some idea at least of different clones is when the leaves come on in the spring, they'll come on at a different rate by different clones. So side by side, two clones, one may have very tiny leaves and they're just starting out and the other may be fully leafed out. Uh, the, the corollary to that is in the fall, they change colors and some have different colors at different times. So this gives you sort of a general way to tell different clones apart. Uh, the way we do that scientifically, of course, is with uh, genetic typing through uh, looking in more detail at the, uh, at the, um, the characteristics genetically of a clone mm-hmm. and to distinguish them. So Paul Sullivan, you've taken this fact of nature and I, I suppose a love of, uh, of Aspen and uh, you turned it into a very beautiful uh, children's book. Uh, tell us how this came about. Aspen's Roots is what we're, what you call this. Yes, um, 
grandchildren have had a huge impact in my life, and so I started thinking about how I could live, leave a bit of a living legacy to my grandchildren. I grew up enjoying the mountains of Utah. I had horses, and I would spend my, my time up in the mountains, and aspen trees were a major part of that, that time in the mountains. So I wrote a story, and initially for my grandchildren, which was just a poem about the aspen tree and some of the lessons that can be learned from nature in this, this great tree. One of the punchlines of the whole thing is, is, is it is what's below the surface that really makes us strong. And so this aspen tree starts off in kind of a self-focused nature, as many children do, thinking about themselves and the small world around them. And as that tree goes through a hard season, it starts to look beyond itself and realizes that it's connected uh, to a much greater system, a system of community, a system of family. And so that was a story I started with, and people liked it. And so I found Pam Gillette, who is an excellent uh, local artist, uh, on aspen trees, and she did the artwork for that. And you're—I imagine you—you're surrounded by aspen trees. Uh, you, you live, I think, in the Uintas. Yes, I do. I actually live off the grid. I have a solar a solar system that powers our house, and I'm in the middle of a transitional forest, mainly aspens, with a few uh, conifers in there. Why hmm. why'd you decide to live off the grid? Well, that's a good story. I. Actually, we grew up, move, I raised my family, I should say, moving from area to area around the world or around the country, and we ended up with what we call a third generation or third culture group of kids, and so we wanted to have something very special that they could finally get an attachment to home, and we chose to be close to the National Forest, we're right on the border of the National Forest, and that resulted in us being a mile from our closest neighbor. So off the grid was the uh, the most cost-effective way to build this home. Hmm. And I'm I'm guessing that uh, you probably sympathize with the school children's proposal. Uh, there's something about aspen trees. Absolutely. I mean, they are a magical tree. They've captured the imagination of many cultures, including the Native American culture. Uh, we have a state name that is Utah after the Ute Indians, so to me it would be very appropriate to have a, a tree that's captured that, that culture's imagination. Hmm. So we'll see how this uh, proceeds. As I said, the governor says he thinks this will succeed. Many of these, you know, don't. Um, but, but I imagine it would be nice to get away from, uh, you know, having the Utah state tree be the Colorado blue spruce. Kind of yes, there's, <laughs> there's a bit of a problem in having Colorado in the name of our state tree. Yeah. Of course, our state bird is the California goal, but uh, that may not change because of its connection with pioneer history of, in Utah. Uh, so, uh, Paul Sullivan, you, you, what were you trying to get across to your grandchildren then with, with this story? Well, actually, I'm trying to get several things across to the grandchildren, uh, and it depends upon their age. For the younger grandchildren, it's simply a matter of, hey, nature has a lot of beauty to it. The artist that did the illustrations put a lot of beauty in a lot of the wildlife of nature. As they get older, hopefully they start to learn there are lessons, that it's, it's more than just what we are, it's what our community has given to us. In the case of the Aspen allegory, you know, there's generations and generations of leaves and roots that have prepared the soil and prepared the way for our particular life. And eventually as we mature, we learn that we should be giving back paying it forward, if you will, by helping the next generation. Hmm. I'm looking at uh, one of the pictures on the, on the website, uh, aspensroots.com, um, and it's a picture of uh, you have the trunks of the trees above ground, but then you see a view below ground, and they're interconnected roots. Little Aspen, the star of the story, is, is a small sapling, but she's interconnected with, with all of uh, those others in the community. I think that's that's what you're that's what you're going for with the story. Correct. At the beginning of the story, you, you don't see a whole lot of uh, subterranean pictures because she is only seeing her life as being a beautiful, young, unblemished sapling growing in the wonders of nature. Um, but we do get some glimpses early on, and then later in the story, she starts to feel of those roots and the connections that she has, and so it's a transition in her seasons of life. Now, Paul Rogers, I, I don't want to break the magic of the you know, spell of the allegory here. As you look at this picture, does that seem 
scientifically accurate? They're, they're all interconnected? That yeah, way? I don't want to break the magic of the allegory. I want to compliment Mr. Sullivan on this book. It's it's very inspiring, and I like the idea of not only the, the social connections of, of humanity, but also these this interconnected web of life. Uh, in the forest, in a forest community, and so you have, you can see even in the subterranean look that there's there's roots of other kinds of tree systems in there as well, as decomposing leaves and and probably some some wildlife come in here and there too. So you have a sort of a multi-pronged, complex, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, illustration going on here with a very elegant and simple story that uh, what I really like about it, as he already stated, that it kind of addresses uh, different age people at different levels. So, mm-hmm. so it's it's beautiful. As far as the scientific aspects of that, that's certainly a possibility. And these are very dynamic systems. So, uh, you know, and if I could just take this, this picture I'm looking at as an illustration, over time you would have a number of forest disruptions in which some Sometimes Aspen would fare very well, and sometimes not, and and so it, it goes. It's an ebb and flow over time, so it's a very dynamic and fluid system. And I think that this story seems to kind of capture that that, if not in scientific detail, that kind of feeling in it, and, and has obviously many other meanings as well. Mm. One of the problems I've been learning with Pando, this uh, very large organism in central Utah is that there's a lack of generations in this particular uh, clone. And they're, as you say, they're all senior citizens in this. That's correct. I've made that statement on, on several other uh, media outlets. But, but so the, um, in Mr. Sullivan's book, he's really uh, focusing in on the roots, which is wonderful. There's a lot going on. It's a very dynamic system there. But uh, what we can see above ground gives us a lot of hints about what's going on, and in particular, human influences on uh, Aspen systems. In the case of the Pando clone, uh, we've in the last oh, three to five years, we've recognized there's been a lot of death in the overstory. Uh, which is actually a natural process, and we should expect to see that those individual stems are 110 or so years old uh, in that in that clone, the dominant stems. But the real problem is is that it's uh, as you say, it's a it's a system predominantly of senior citizens, and so that gives us some sense that the things out of whack. There's very few youngsters and teenagers and mid age. Uh, stems in this system and that's because of you know cut right to the to the chase here that's because of browsing uh of wildlife and a little bit uh livestock as well over over time so and that's kind of come on you in the last 30 40 years as as far as we can tell and that's going on throughout the state of utah in the west that phenomenon to varying degrees in different places but so and so make no mistake about it humans control those numbers of both wildlife and livestock a little bit more control over livestock but still that's even though to many of the the listeners that may appear to be a natural occurrence the numbers of animals and in, in many cases the movement of animals is is highly uh, controlled by by wildlife agencies one of the solutions i've i've seen that's been proposed is to, to build a fence is this that is that true? And if, if that, so, is, already, is that proceeding? We're, we're already done with that. Uh, oh, matter of fact, I was down up. there last week, so I'm fresh off the Pando clone with new information. But so they finished uh, constructing a fence around part of the, the lower part that's below the highway and nearer to the lake uh, just this summer. So it's been in place about two months, and we're already without any stimulation at all, cutting or burning or anything. We're seeing uh, a fairly good response of uh, small suckers popping up there that in the past were chewed as were chewed up immediately when they when they came above ground. So it's having an effect. It it appears to be having an effect. Mm-hmm. This is a, not only a, a, a triage protection program, but it's also we it's an experiment. Everything we do is an experiment, and so we need to test whether what we think will happen will actually happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it seems a little counterintuitive, at least uh, you know on a gut level. It's, you're out in nature. Yeah. This is kind of man's control to the nth degree, isn't it? You're building a fence. <laughs> That's right. I kind of call it the, the Pando conundrum. There's yeah. a couple of conundrums there. Is One is that this is something that's been around for certainly hundreds, if not thousands of years or even more. But all of a sudden, something that we've we've done in our manipulations of nature are causing uh, things to go south pretty quick to to sort of be a threatened system. So that's number one. That's kind of 
confusing to people. And then secondly, as you suggest, having to build a fence to, to make this more sustainable, to intervene in this way. Um, the, the difficult uh, question for me is not just the pandas, but the wider Aspen community across the state or west, because we can't build fences around larger things. This is a special clone, and it has it has some iconic um, uh, visibility and being a U.S. stamp, for example. Uh, but so with some special protection is underway there and, and physically putting up a fence. And we'd, we want to put up signs to inform the public what we're trying to do. But but you're exactly right. It's it's ironic in a way that we have to intervene at this level to protect something. But ultimately, it's it's because of some decisions we've made in the past in terms of of managing and movement of wildlife and uh, um, domestic livestock. Now, there's some problems, of course, with uh, building a fence. you you got to watch it, right? And there can be breaches. If you have one breach, then a lot of the wildlife will get in. Yeah, again, once again, you're correct. Uh, you know, if, if you're not in the woods all the time, people might be surprised that trees often do fall in the woods. And, the, and when you put up a fence, inevitably, they fall over the fence quite frequently. And so you really got to be on top of that. One breach could, could wipe out a year's worth of protection if it's left open for a couple of weeks, you know, and the, it's the salad bar that they're waiting and looking inside the fence at because there's a lot of nutrients in those little suckers. And, and aspen uh, are targeted specifically by elk and deer, but also by some, some livestock, um, cattle and sheep. We're talking with Paul Rogers, who's director of the Western Aspen Alliance. It's based at Utah State University. And with Paul Sullivan, who is out with a uh, beautiful new children's book uh, based on Aspen, uh, the way they're interconnected, where they're uh, cloned and, and uh, built upon each other. A large grove like Pando can be one clone. Uh, that's the case in Pando. Uh, we're going to talk more about this, the allegorical aspects of this and uh, the science of Aspen. Aspen has been proposed as uh, the new state tree for Utah. Governor Herbert says he thinks this may well pass. We will see. This has been proposed by school children from Monroe. And I think there is an attraction of us all to Aspen. We're talking about this on the program back following a brief break. The trees in Utah's forests suck up water like sponges and leave a record in their growth rings of when there was a lot of water in the region and when there was very little. Researchers are learning to decode the tree ring record and reconstruct what Utah's watersheds must have been through over the past millennium. I'm Jennifer Pemberton. On the next 5 billion gallons, we'll have the story of how Utah's water past can help us plan for Utah's water future. Tuesday afternoon during All Things Considered and Wednesday morning during Morning Edition. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. Make your reservations now for dinner with Zorba Pastor of Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Enjoy a vegetarian or meat selection and a festival of fall flavors prepared by the chefs at Herm's Inn in Logan, Thursday, October 17th. This private dinner will benefit local programming on Utah Public Radio. Reservation details about UPR's dinner with Public Radio's favorite doc, Zorba Pastor, online at upr.org. We're back on Axis Utah talking about aspen trees. Uh, why a whole program on aspen trees? I think they, they capture the imagination. And for one example, uh, Paul Sullivan, Utah native uh, who retired essentially up to the Uintas, uh, has written a beautiful children's book, um, beautifully illustrated as well. Um, and I, I, Paul Sullivan, I can't remember the, the name of the illustrator. Pamela Gillette. She's Pamela Gillette. She's a artist. Uh, very beautifully illustrated. It's called Aspen's Roots, and the website is aspensroots.com. Paul Rogers is with us as well. He is director of the Western Aspen Alliance, based at Utah State University. We're talking about Pando, one of the largest organisms on Earth, perhaps one of the oldest. It's a, uh, I don't know what you call it, Paul Rogers, a stand, a grove. It's, it's essentially one Aspen tree but it occupies, you know, a huge area. That's right. We, we refer to it as a clone. Mm -hmm. uh, the terms stand and grove are a little ambiguous, but we refer to it as the Pando clone. Yeah. And we're getting the public more used to that term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so, Paul Sullivan, uh, I want to, uh, I guess this is the end of your book or near the end of the book. Uh, a lot of us are familiar with seeing family trees with, you know, above ground. You, you, you branch off, you have grandma and grandpa and so forth and so up. You sort of reverse that. Yours is below ground, and you have a space where the, the children who can ride in their family roots. Correct, yes. Um, we just like to do that. We added a few worms and ants and other things that are going to be below the ground that may be contributing to the, the perspective of those roots. I, I like the concept that we have a history that underpins us rather than a bunch of things above us. And so I just like the family tree represented in more of a root nature. Yeah, it makes more sense because these are people who came before us and we're standing on their shoulders, as it were. And in the, in the case of aspen trees, of course, it's those roots over the generations that provided all the conditioning that the future little saplings could grow. Hmm. And a, a lot of the, there's a running themes in the book, uh, these aspen trees, the aspen clone, as it were, is interacting with other parts of the natural world around it. Correct, yes. Uh, Pamela Gillette's done a, a magnificent job, in my perspective, of, of bringing in all the wildlife that you see. I, living up in the UN, as we live at 7,200 7, feet of elevation, and we see all this wildlife that's interacting in the forest, and it's, it's magical. And I think almost all children, young and old, enjoy uh, the many miracles of nature. I was reading that uh, you were reading this book, I think, to your grandchildren of varying ages. They were approaching this or receiving this at various levels. I guess they, you have an allegory like this. It can be received at various levels. Exactly, yes. I, I try to read it to different age groups. I've gone to different libraries and schools and read it to groups. And the young kids, uh, they just love uh, the pictures. They love also to, to try to understand what the concept of roots is. I usually ask a young group, do you have any roots? And they laugh and say, of course not, we don't have roots. And I'll have them use their arms as limbs and then say, what are those things at your feet? Are your, what are those? And they say, they're feet. But I say, no, those are also your roots. And then as we get to the end of the story, I ask them if they have parents. Do they have grandparents? Do they have great-grandparents? And, of course, they'll acknowledge those things and just explain to them their, their roots. The older kids, it's a, it's a lot of fun to talk to them about what has Aspen learned over the various seasons of her life, this particular little sapling we're talking about, and what's the difference between her at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, and they, they catch the themes. Hmm. They understand at a young age that she's learning about her family, but at an older age they learn um, more things. That they're, She's learning that there's a lot beyond her, and that's that's the kind of the message that I like to convey. This also could be expanded to talk about community as well, I imagine. Abs absolutely. One of my favorite science fiction stories was written back in the 1950s by a person by the name of Arthur Clarke. And he wrote about an intergalactical voyage where there was... Um, different races from the galaxies, if you will, in the science fiction story. And there was one lowly group called the Paladurians that rescued a mission. And their reason they could rescue it, because individually they weren't as intelligent or beautiful or strong as some of the other races, but they had the ability to connect with their fellow Paladurians. And therefore, as a community, they could solve problems that individuals that were individually more intelligent could not. Hmm. Do you think um, you think in today's world that uh, imagine some children this journey is is interrupted? It's a kind of a natural journey. You your universe first of all is your immediate family. Then you discover more roots. Hopefully that takes you out into your community. You're connected there. Do you think that is interrupted uh, in today's world sometimes? Well, I think, I think sometimes the community, uh, in Hong Kong, it's interesting where I'm living currently, uh, because there's such a large population, you see a lot of people focusing not even on their, their neighbor sitting next to them on a bus or a tram, but on their little electronic device in their hands. And that's one of the concerns I have with my own grandchildren, as well as commuting at large, that is video games, etc. if we start looking too much inward, we don't experience the beauty and the lessons that are all around us. 
we become, in a way, less part of community as more community grows around us. In your afterword to your book, you, you, you give some of the science, give some context. I wonder, it got me thinking, what first got you into thinking about aspen trees? Well, I, I am a scientist by background. It just so happens I've, I've got a combination of geology and engineering in my background and, and uh, used to be a director of research for a very large international company. Uh, I just enjoy the science of, of a lot of things. I enjoy research. I enjoy uh, Native American research, but have always loved nature. And I think there's just a lot to be learned from nature. So from a very young age, when I grew up along the Wasatch Front, I had horses, and I would spend time going up into, into the aspen groves and, and camping and just enjoying the beauty of Utah's wonderful nature. Hmm. Paul Rogers, I wonder for you, this is, you know, you're, you devote, you devote your days studying aspen trees. How'd you get into that? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I do, and I, I've, I'm like uh, Paul Sullivan. I'm, I've been fascinated by science, but I'm particularly fascinated by the connection of between social and physical sciences. And 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 I, I tell a lot of the audiences I speak with that we work through the ecology of of aspen issues and problems. For example, this browsing issue on Pandu, Pando. But we quickly get to the social issues, and I'm very interested and fascinated by how we work through those those issues and so that's probably what drives me day to day for example that if 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 uh, if uh, a number of browsers is too high why is that so well that leads to uh, the the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources manages wildlife and particularly large game uh, by hunting tickets uh, hunting tags and they get a certain amount of revenue from that so that in a sense that drives part of that system even so we're quickly from an ecological system to a a cultural or economic system right there but but it's into the human area pretty quickly and so that makes these um, ecological uh, problems very difficult and complex but not unsolvable Mm. and so that's kind of what drives me day to day and that's what got me into this although I was originally fascinated by the ecology of uh, Aspen and forest ecology more broadly uh, through my career I had 16 years of uh, working on forest monitoring uh, with the Forest Service around all the western states and a little bit uh, internationally as well but then I drifted from that into wanting to dive into that data and try to solve or at least push the ball down the road a little bit in terms of solving some of these issues. Uh, and Aspen is the one I clung to just because some of the contacts I had and that being one of the biggest forest ecology issues in the West. There's, there's a lot of things going on where, uh, where Aspen are, are suffering or denuded. There's some places where they're, they're healthy as well. And, and so naturally a scientist wants to try to pick that apart and improve that situation. And so mm-hmm. uh, that brought in my, my background in the physical science ecology. But, but as I, as I kind of keep tugging the conversation is over toward this human connection. And, and that sort of drives me back to Paul's comments earlier about the, the community aspect of things here. And so now we're involved in these uh, collaborative working groups in which you invite people to the table with very widely differing perspectives. You might even say they were enemies at one time. Uh, around natural resource issues, but bringing them to the table and trying to get them to solve these problems involves a lot of bumps in the road and a lot of thinking and a lot of compromise and a lot of getting to know people. So I'm fascinated by that transition between physical and social sciences. And you you say you're hopeful some of these problems which seem intractable. They certainly do, and there's a lot of conflict when we get into some of these areas. Yeah. Uh, you, you're hopeful. I am very hopeful, yeah. For example, again, working with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, we've developed some great relationships with them, we being the greater collaborative working group. Uh, between you know ranchers and wildlife managers and uh, conservationists and federal land managers and state uh, forest managers, all these different groups, we've developed some great relationships, and we're actually making some progress when we focus on the problem that's in the middle here and not so much at the pointing fingers at different groups. And so we're really moving forward, and I am, I guess by nature, an optimistic person, but I do see us making some advances that way. The, uh, the other track that we've been going down for a long time in the natural resources world is litigation and sitting back in our offices and firing off lawsuits and things and really getting the whole system uh, jammed up. And, and so that's a lot of people have been frustrated from all perspectives with that. And so I see some real optimism in that and moving forward in, in some of these issues that I'm familiar with. Hmm. 
Paul Sullivan, I'm interested to get your take. You're a, you're a landowner up there next to the National Forest. Um, I don't know if you've been involved in or proximate to any of the, the disputes that uh, Paul Rogers has been talking about. Uh, really, I haven't, Tom. The, the thing I do see, though, of course, is the, the grazing of cattle. Uh, my, my particular uh, clone of aspens that I'm living amongst is, is very different than the clone down at Pando, I think. Uh, I have a lot of young saplings, unlike the, the clone that Paul, Paul Rogers was talking about. I've also traveled in elsewhere in the Uennas and seen, seen clones that are almost all very, very large stems. So I don't know how much it varies. I'd be very interested in, in Paul Rogers' take on that. Yeah, what what is the variance? Uh, that's a great question. So there is a lot of variability as a as a really uh, broad rule of thumb. Our bigger issues with browsers, both wild and domestic, has been in central and southern Utah. Although I was in the area where where Paul Sullivan uh, lives in that general area this summer. And as we went further around uh, to the uh, eastern end of the Uintas, we saw more and more of these problems that I'm that I'm discussing. And I was also in extreme southwest Wyoming this summer, where we saw um, some really intense browsing. Predominantly in these situations, it was by elk, and not uh, and not domestic livestock. But I've I've heard a lot of talk about along the southern slope of the Uintas that things are in pretty good shape in some areas uh, up here around. Uh, Around Logan in the far north of Utah, we don't seem to have the, the serious issues that we do in the in central and south part. But in general, I divide aspen into two sort of types, and there's a, there's a pure aspen type or community type in which uh, there's, they're not competing with conifers. And then predominantly in, in the north and in, in the Uintas particularly, there's the, there's the more traditional, you might say, in terms of aspen science, um, cereal aspen, that's S-E-R-A-L, uh, in which aspen starts out as a pioneer species, and then over time, conifers will overtop that uh, over a period of decades or hundreds of years. Uh, and when a fire comes along, it kind of resets the clock. That's kind of traditional aspen science. But we're doing more exploration these days. Uh, in these, the real problem areas, as I've seen them around the West, have been in those those more pure aspen stands in which fire doesn't play a large role at all, and they reproduce um, uh, in small spurts and starts with many ages of different uh, different stems and when you cut off a couple generations then you're kind of uh, you're putting all your chips on the table at one time or that analogy of having a whole community of senior citizens is sort of in a dangerous situation mm-hmm. so so it does vary quite a bit around the west it varies with uh, livestock and animal populations uh, wildlife populations it varies with the amount of fire and fire suppression fire suppression which is putting out fires is kind of the enemy of aspen in a sense now, the exception is in a situation like where Paul Sullivan has developed a home and others have developed many homes in the wild, Aspen can act as a firebreak. So it can be our friend in that regard. And what I mean by that is that uh, if a fire is coming through a conifer uh, forest and it runs into a dense stand of Aspen, it tends to not burn. It sometimes have been called the asbestos forest. So that's sort of another interesting turn about Aspen. So we're encouraging some, some uh, property owners and developers to... Uh, to trim out or use some sort of controlled burning uh, at some area around human developments to kind of as a safeguard and to promote Aspen in that way uh, as a safeguard, as a firebreak. Interesting. I hadn't heard about that. Uh, There's a prescribed burn coming up, I believe. Yeah, understand there is and we do one i think every almost every year they try to do one now this is way up north here near uh near logan and the idea with that again is that there's folks that feel that fire suppression over time uh, has um, encouraged conifers and suppressed aspen and so the idea behind that is to essentially burn out the uh the conifers in the stand and promote more aspen and so that's what they're trying to do. I, I believe, I don't know the project specifically, but I believe that's the general plan here. And, the, and there's a lot the, of benefits for that. Wildlife mm. and, and, and uh, there's more uh, forage for livestock. There's a number of benefits, but I'm not sure exactly what they're trying to do with this local one. Uh, so just to just make clear, I hadn't made that clear before, this would be a prescribed burn among Aspen. To, to, for That's the reasons correct. you state. Yeah. It, and, uh, and if you have too many aspen, mm-hmm. it just won't burn yeah. unless you get the right situation. So they'll try to you – you need a certain level of conifers in there to burn. Yeah. Paul Sullivan, I wonder uh, – these are maybe worries you have. Fire, you know, you're up 
you're up in the woods. I uh, certainly am. In fact, I had to sign a waiver that the fire department would not help me if I if I did have a local fire being a mile away from our closest neighbor. Uh, it is a concern, and the way we've addressed it is we've built in the uh, Quaking Aspen uh, Grove there, or clone, I guess I should say. Uh, we've also gone through and, and harvested some of the deadfall, and I think we're in a pretty good pretty good position. And a lot of stone on the outside of the home, and, and metal roof also ought to help. Yeah, I guess you you sounds like you've done what you could. I have, yeah. There, there's, yeah. there's clearly a risk. Yeah. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, we'll talk with uh, Paul Rogers from the Western Aspen Alliance and with Paul Sullivan, who lives up in the Uanas in, uh, in an Aspen clone. I, I guess I should adopt that terminology as well. And uh, who has written a, a beautifully illustrated children's book called uh, uh, Aspen's Roots. Uh, more following the break. Public Radio's favorite dog, Zorba Pastor of Zorba Pastor on Your Health, is coming to Utah. I'm Tom Clark here again with Public Radio's favorite family doc, Zorba Pastor. Take a hike with the doctor Saturday, October 19th. This benefit event is just what the doctor ordered and includes a private guided hike, a beautifully catered brunch at Moab's Youth Garden Project Gathering Place, and of course, lots of laughter. The best medicine with all proceeds to benefit programming on Utah Public Radio. Reservation information and details about Zorba's visit to Moab can be found on our website at upr.org. See you soon in Moab. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science. This Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center, featured speaker Roger Coulomb, USU toxicologist, watching disease happen, the pathology of air pollution. Information at usu.edu slash unwrapped. And USU Athletics, offering Aggie basketball season tickets, including all 20 home games and the BYU game in Salt Lake City. Information is at utahstateaggies.com or at the USU Spectrum ticket office. We're back with uh, Paul Sullivan, who's written the uh, beautiful children's book, Aspen's Roots, and uh, with Paul Rogers, who's director of the Western Aspen Alliance, headquartered at uh, Utah State University. Aspen trees uh, hold a, a special place in our imagination. That's one reason, I think, why uh, school children from Monroe are proposing to the legislature that we change our state tree uh, from the Colorado blue spruce to the aspen tree. Governor Herbert says that he's optimistic that this may well pass. And Aspen's Roots uh, takes that fascination with Aspen's, especially this idea that they're all interconnected, or at least the clones, and the whole groves of trees can be one clone underground. And uh, it talks about the education of a young Aspen tree as she discovers uh, her roots, as it were, those who came before. Paul Sullivan, author of Aspen's Roots, and Paul Rogers, Western Aspen Alliance, with us for the hour uh, today. Uh, Paul uh, Sullivan, I, w- I wonder this this idea of aspen trees as symbol, and of course that's what's being will be debated at the Utah Legislature if this uh, comes before the legislature. What do you think aspen tree would mean? Well, how do you think that would represent Utah as opposed to the Colorado blue spruce? Well, if you take them as a symbol, the first symbol you think of is community, and we've adopted the the beehive state, which is another community, so I think it would very much complement that. Uh, Paul Rogers, I wondered, I don't know if the Western Aspen Alliance has a position on this. Well, as a matter of fact, Tom, I was down at this ceremony here uh, uh, last um, Tuesday and, and watched the, the uh, fourth grade class present this uh, to uh, to Governor Herbert. And uh, I, we do have a position in that we think that it would be uh, it would have some economic and social benefits for the state as well. Um, the Colorado Bruce Spruce does not really drive economics too much in the state of Utah, whereas the Aspen has a lot of uh, economic value in, in addition to the symbology, which I don't disagree with, but the economic value being as a habitat for wildlife, as watershed protection. Uh, Aspen are known to um, 
to reserve more water in the forest than conifer-dominated stands, um, as uh, the aesthetic and tourist values. And I and I brought up to the to the um, to someone from the ski industry the fact that uh, I, we couldn't think of a single ski resort in Utah that didn't have Aspen on it, and and in more pointedly on their brochures. So so there's a there's an economic angle as well, and a real connection to the state in that way that that people think of this as a as a beautiful landscape, the state as a whole, and Aspen plays a big role in that. To the point where uh, I do see down in towns, people try to put aspens in their front yard with varying success. I see places where that fails miserably. Others have managed to nurse it along. I guess there's an elevation um, limit there. I'm not sure what... There is an elevation limit. I mean, generally the valleys are going to be too dry, but of course we can irrigate anything. I I don't recommend aspen as a domestic tree, although some people do it successfully. I, I tell people you often get more than you want or you get a damaged uh, uh dying tree in your yard. They're very finicky in that way. Uh, one of the, the things that I point out to a lot of groups is that Aspen is thin-skinned, and I like that uh, analogy for several reasons. It's a it's a sort of a pro-con look at Aspen, but one of the benefits of that thin skin is that it's easily penetrated by uh, birds and they make nests in it. And the other one of the one of the the cons you might say is that it gets every kind of infection you might imagine. Well, those two things come together, and that those infections cause rot in the center of the tree, which would make it very easy for uh, cavity nesting birds to uh, start their homes there. And so that starts a whole chain reaction of primary and secondary cavity nesting birds, and so it increases the diversity of your forest. Just that one element, that sort of thin skin nature of it. But back to the domestic situation, it makes a, a little bump with the lawnmower or turn into an infection that often kills the tree. Uh, the inverse of that being that if you want a nice lawn and you've got suckers coming up everywhere and then you cut them with the lawnmower, they're not very nice to walk in in your feet. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah. Paul Sullivan, you mentioned earlier in the program that uh, you've done some research on Native Americans. Native Americans uh, have revered aspen trees. Yes, they have. I mean, they've used them in a lot of different ways for a food source, for a medicine source. Uh, Anything that's related to the wind uh, is also revered. And, of course, aspens in their very, very unique structure of their leaves connecting to twigs have a unique motion. I mean, the whole name quaking aspen comes from the way that the leaves shimmer in just the slightest breeze. And so there's, there are some wonderful um, stories or legends about the naming and how aspens came to be. Uh, do, do you do you have one at your fingertips? Uh, so, so I speak, have you a tell few us? at my fingertips. It just <laughs> so happens one of them, which I like, is a kind of a, a Native American Cinderella story. It's a story about a, a young woman that was being abused by her older sister. It's some some versions of the story have one sister and some have two sisters. Anyway. Um, all the Indian maidens wanted to, uh, to marry this great brave that couldn't be seen. And in order to marry him, they would have to be able to see him and acknowledge him, and then they could become the bride. And years and years went on, and no one was able to. Well, one of these uh, so, so-called wicked sisters wanted to marry this, this um, brave that couldn't be seen, and she tried to describe him, just guessing at what he looked like, but she really didn't see him. But her younger sister, uh, who had been abused, and her name had something to do with how she had been abused. She was Little Scarface, and she had been abused and burned in the fire, etc., etc. Her hair had been cut. Well, when she um, made an attempt to see this brave, because of the purity of her heart, she could see this brave that couldn't be seen. And he revealed himself to her, and she then was able to have her beauty restored, which was natural to her. Now, her sisters didn't fare quite so well. Um, They were turned into trees, and it just so happens they were turned into quaking aspen trees. And now, whenever the wind comes that cannot be seen, they quiver at the memory of how they were changed. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, that could be your next book. Indeed, could be. There's there are a lot of stories about aspen trees. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, yes, go ahead. Did you have another one? Oh, oh, I could. I could share another one. The the, the Ute Indians of the name of our state 
have have a legend that the aspen tree actually originated when um, the great spirit came to the earth and all the animals uh, quivered and quaked at the the visit of the great spirit but in that case the proud aspen did not it stood erect and it didn't shake at all and so it was cursed from that time on that every time uh, the spirit or the wind came by it would quiver and shake Hmm. so that's a very short story or legend but that's the second one i have yeah uh we're reaching the end of our time uh, paul rogers what's what, where's the science going and what what are, what are the what are the i guess most proximate concerns of the western aspen alliance oh that's a good question tom uh well the western aspen alliance is a network of many different scientists working on different aspects of uh, aspen ecology and and uh, aspen issues in the west so the science some really interesting science uh, uh is going on in the field of genetics uh my colleague here at utah state karen mock is doing a lot of that work but we're finding that aspen seeds that is true seedlings arising from seed are more common than we previously thought and and in the old literature, it was, it was often termed rare that there were any uh, viable seeds or seedlings. And now we're finding the more we look, the more we find, and particularly after large wildfires. So, so the interaction now of genetics and wildfires and, and agency policy against uh, uh, opposing wildfires and fire suppression, all those things kind of interact. interact so that's one issue. Uh, also in the wildlife sciences, um, uh, the diversity of species, that's sort of one issue. Um, the browsing and overbrowsing, that's kind of the issue I discussed earlier. That's, a, that's taking a big part of my effort, both in my scientific research and in my collaborative work uh, with working groups around the West. Uh, that's another area. Water conservation is another big area that, uh, that Aspen uh, is making a contribution to, and many scientists are working on that. Um, and then climate change, of course, uh, brings together a lot of these elements. Uh, just a quick uh, link here. There's been some research in Arizona uh, suggesting that uh, where there's not snow where there previously was uh, on the Mugione Plateau, and there are a lot of elk. The elk are now staying over the winter, and they're browsing aspen stems year-round, and that's kind of trickling up the uh, cascade of, uh, of the ecological network there, and so that's affecting bird communities. The diversity is being reduced. The number of aspen forests are being reduced. All of these things kind of connected in a chain, so that's some really interesting research going on as well. Uh, a lot of people have heard the stories or, or some of the scientific research coming out of Yellowstone uh, with the, the role of predators and how they influence herbivores like uh, elk and deer and buffalo. And so there's some connections there that are being explored, and that's becoming quite a scientific debate. So there's a lot going on. The job of the Western Aspen Alliance is to communicate that to land and wildlife managers as best we can and try to get folks more active in the current science going on in the field. And the website is, is western-aspen-alliance.org. By the way, if this plug-in was working on this computer, uh, and I'm, I'm sure listeners, if, if they go there, uh, you you have a little uh, animation trembling the leaves. That's right. I wanted to make that comment. Is a lot of times when we think about landscapes, we don't think about the auditory aspect of that. And so, and taking off on what Paul Sullivan was saying, is that that trembling or quaking, uh, trembling in Canada and quaking in the U.S. Uh, as and if, if you go out to these landscapes and just close your eyes, a lot of people find immense satisfaction in just hearing that sound. And there's, you know, that, there's a lot of value in that, intrinsic value as, we, as, we, as itself. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, you're taking me to the mountains right now. Uh, by the way, the Western Aspen Alliance newsletter is called the Tremblings or Tremblings, right? So that's that's, that's another kind of a nice nice connection. Uh, Paul Sullivan, uh, the the book is out, of course. Aspen's Roots, aspensroots.com is where to go and find out information about that. What what's next for you? Well, actually, I have two other books that I have in in process. Uh, for different ages of grandchildren. Uh, one is uh, about the Native American uh, Indians that lived in the area where I live. So I'm kind of on the borderline between uh, the, the Ute tribe and the Shoshone tribe Indians. And so that's, that's a book that I'll be working on after I return from Hong Kong. I'd like to just put in a plug for those wonderful students at Monroe uh, that have connected with nature and have made this proposal. It's nice to see that they're really focused on the lessons of nature and, and bringing that forward to the governor. Yeah, that is, that is wonderful to see them, uh, see them involved. 
yeah, we'll we'll see how this proceeds. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Paul Sullivan, author of uh, the book Aspen's Roots. You can find out more about that at aspensroots.com. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tom. And Paul Rogers is director of the Western Aspen Alliance, headquartered at the Utah State University. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Paul Sullivan, for writing this book. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure to interact with you both. And for producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science. This Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center, featured speaker Roger Coulomb, USU toxicologist, watching disease happen, the pathology of air pollution. Information at usu.edu slash unwrapped. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan. Hello and welcome this morning. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. I'm Brian Earle and I'm joined by my colleague Terry Guy. And we're here to solicit your support for Access Utah and UPR programs at 1-800-826-1495. That's 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. And Terry, I've been listening to this program as I was driving in, while I was in my office, and I learned quite a bit about Aspen. And it is. It's it's one of those amazing things that we have here in Utah that we can all enjoy. It's just absolutely beautiful. Well, and it's part of, I mean, why do we need to know about it? Well, we can help protect the environment while we're here. And, and uh, public radio listeners are known for their concern about the environment. They're They're known for their curiosity. So even just learning about Aspen and what they're all about. So the next time I'm outside, I can understand that uh, grove of trees a little bit. So it's, hey, that's a clone, or um, or that could be two clones. In the fall, I was telling Tom, I was up at the canyon, and I saw a, a group of Aspens that were all yellow, except right in the middle, they were orange. Well, now I know that those were two separate Different types. clones. So that's well, and you great. know, it's interesting, because I grew up in the desert, where there was no Aspens. We had Joshua trees, and everyone that came through, of course, were always amazed by those, because they'd never seen them anywhere else in their life. Um, uh, so coming to Utah and um, actually lived in uh, Georgia for a while, you see beautiful trees everywhere. and um, the But the aspen here in Utah are definitely beautiful and distinctive and something that everyone cherishes, I think. Well, that's something that we've learned today. We hope that you have found something uh, of interest in Access Utah, either today or another day, call and make a contribution. More than just listening, but become a member of the station. 1-800-826-1495. All day today, everyone who calls or goes online will be entered into a drawing for our second 16-gigabyte iPad mini with Wi-Fi, but that has to be done today. And if you are a sustaining member, every sustaining member Uh, is entered into all the drawings automatically. So that's an incentive to become a sustaining member of UPR. Uh, Our toll-free number, 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. Do you think Access Utah is worth just $3 a month? I actually think it's worth a whole lot more than that. So I hope that we'll have some listeners out there that are listening this morning and want to make a pledge at 1-800-826-1495 or go to upr.org. Give us some ideas for some subjects you'd like to hear about. 1-800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. Thanks for listening.